don't know if you've ever uh, had a moment in your life where you're just so excited that you just can't keep it in and uh, you're meant to hold it in you're meant to be sort of keeping a secret or something but then you just sort of blurt it out because you're too excited about it Uh, at the moment I have the dubious privilege of going to lots of primary school concerts and things like that just because of the age of my children and uh, with the Christmas concert there's always one kid every year who has been told learn this line off by heart learn this line off by heart so they learn it off by heart and then they go out and they just say it straight away even though it's not the right point for it in the play or whatever it is Uh, it happens every year I'm looking forward to it again this Thursday when I go to the but uh, it happened to me a little while back a fair little while back actually when Victoria and I got married at the wedding service if you were ever to get a you can borrow the video actually of our wedding if you want to have three hours of your life you don't want to get back but anyway uh, and if you've got a video player as well to play it on uh, but there's a point in the service where uh, if you ever want to see me get a bit embarrassed you can see it uh, and uh, I'll face the row so I was facing this way obviously you know as the minister's marrying us and uh, you see this point and people have actually watched the video and paused it for me just to point it out where you see the flush of embarrassment go the whole way up the back of my neck onto my ears and they go bright red like sort of beacons and so people very helpful family and friends have uh, pointed that out to me but what happened was uh, you know the vows where it's will you take Victoria to be your wife and then he's got about 10 more lines to say after that and it's at the end that you say I will Uh, well he made the minister made the mistake of pausing after will you take Victoria to be your wife and I said I will and he told me at the rehearsal, we don't have any microphones, so you've got to say it really loud. So I said, I will. <laughs> I've already got a loud voice, you know. And so the whole place just erupted as he said, settle down, big fella. You know, we're, we're, we've got about nine more lines. You've still got to love and cherish and till death do us part and all that sort of thing. And as I say, I just went red and that sort of thing. But when you're excited uh, you really, and you really want something, you can't keep it in can you it just sort of bursts out of you and this is one of those moments in the story uh, where that happens now with Joseph and so if you're here with us for the first time tonight you're coming in on the end of the story Uh, and I hope you'll go home and read the rest of the story right back from chapter 37 but for all of us here we've been following along the whole while and we know Joseph has been keeping this secret in so his brothers have come to him and he's recognized them but they haven't recognized him and so he's been testing them and we've seen it over and over again haven't we he's been setting these sort of tests for them to see have they repented have they changed are they going to act differently now and in particular are they going to treat Benjamin their father's new favorite are they going to treat him with jealousy and hatred like they treated Joseph all those years ago or has something changed in them has there been repentance Uh, and so he's seen the way they've changed He's seen the way that they now treat Benjamin with respect and love, not with jealousy and hatred. And then finally, last week, Judah steps up and does this incredible Christ-like act of sacrificial love. And remember, we saw it last week. It's the high point of everything we've seen so far. As Judah steps up and says, don't punish my little brother Benjamin even though he's dad's favorite and even though he gets everything and I get nothing don't punish him take me instead and the only way to describe it is it's Jesus like it it points us forward to Jesus as he says I will take responsibility for this one who is my father's favorite 
Uh, and so now as we pick it up at chapter 45, we see that Judah's offer is sort of like the final straw for Joseph. It's too much for him. So look at verse 1. It says, Joseph could no longer keep his composure in front of all his attendants. So he called out, send everyone away from me. No one, who was, with him, no one was with him when he revealed his identity to his brothers. But he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and also Pharaoh's household heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? If you have any sort of uh, emotional bone in your body, you say this is a beautiful moment in the story. This is a wonderful moment. He can't keep it in. And you, you, you get this picture of him just weeping with the emotion of it all as he reveals himself to his brothers. But of course, it's not quite the magical, beautiful moment for the brothers because they're terrified. They realize now that this man who's been messing with them, that's what he's been doing for the last few chapters, who's been messing with them, this man who has their lives in his hands, is the brother they tried to kill and the brother they sold into slavery. And it says there, do you see it there? They were terrified in his presence. I mean, they think, what's he going to do? What's he going to do to us? Will he give us what we deserve? But he doesn't. And instead, he makes one of the great statements of the Bible. Look at verse 5. He says, and now don't be worried or angry with yourselves for selling me here because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. And then verse 7, God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Now, what is it that he's saying there in those verses, verse 5 and verse 7? We have to get this right, because this is the main point of the whole story. This is what it's all about, what he's talking about here. And I want to say what he's not saying, first of all. He's not saying, don't worry about it, I forgive you because I'm such a lovely, forgiving sort of fellow. He's not saying that. And he's not saying, don't worry, I forgive you because in the end it worked out okay for me, so I've been able to get over the way you treated me all those years ago. He's not saying that. What he's saying is, I am able to forgive you because I understand that God has worked through all these things to bring about the fulfillment of his promises. He's saying, I'm able to forgive you. I'm able to not hold this grudge against you, not take revenge because of what I know about God, because of what I've learned about God. To put it in New Testament language, he's saying, I can have this attitude towards you because I am genuinely convicted that God works through everything good and evil and in between for the eternal good of his children you see it's because I understand that God is in control of all things that's why I don't need to take revenge that's why I can forgive you see what Joseph is doing here is it's like he's giving them a great Sunday school class while they're standing in front of them. He is teaching them great theology. He's explaining one of the most wonderful theological truths, the fact that God is in control of everything, that God is working for the good of his children in everything, even when it looks hopeless, and even when it looks like he could never be doing it. That's what he's teaching them. But more than that, what he's doing them is he is showing them and us how good theology, what you have in here, transforms you and changes you see what we believe 
drives how we act and how we treat other people. And on the other side of the coin, how we act and how we treat other people shows very clearly what we actually believe. See, this is why we need good theology. This is why we need to have our minds shaped by God's word. Every so often I talk to people at church and they say, yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't need to study the Bible anymore. I think I've got enough. I know enough of the Bible, right? I've got a simple faith. I, I know that Jesus died for me. I know he rose again and that's enough. No, 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 no. You need to transform your mind or have your mind transformed with the knowledge of God. That's why we devote ourselves to the study of the scriptures. See, when we don't forgive another person, so think back to when someone has hurt you. When we have an attitude of, I want revenge rather than I will forgive, the fundamental issue is that we have not grasped God's forgiveness of us. We've not grasped the truth that God teaches us in his word, that we are sinners who need forgiving ourselves. When we hold on to resentment, you know how we're very good at that, holding on to a grudge, it's because we haven't grasped God is working for good in all things even through the way this person has hurt me. When we won't repent of our sin or or we don't even see the need to repent of it, it's because we haven't grasped the truth of God's picture of us. See, our belief must shape and change our practice or we don't actually believe it. That's why in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus tells us to pray. You know when Jesus says, Lord, forgive us our sins. What does he say next? as we forgive others. Be very, very slow to pray that prayer. Think about it. I would much rather the Lord's Prayer said, Lord, forgive me much more than I'm willing to forgive others. Because that's more realistic to me, who I am as a sinner. But it doesn't say that. He says, Lord, forgive us our sins as we forgive others. You see, what Jesus is teaching us there is, forgive me to the extent that I am willing to forgive other people, Jesus is saying what you believe about God and his forgiveness will show itself in how willing you are to forgive other people. If we don't forgive others, it shows we haven't grasped God's forgiveness of us. And so back to Genesis, there's this wonderful reconciliation. Joseph tells his brothers, go and bring our dad down, bring everything, bring all you have, all your livestock, bring it down to Egypt and I will give you this incredibly fertile land of Goshen uh, or the land of Ramesses to live in and you see the full extent of the reconciliation there in verses 14 and 15, look with me. It says, then Joseph threw his arms around Benjamin and wept and Benjamin wept on his shoulder. Joseph kissed each of his brothers as he wept and afterward his brothers talked with him. So now at last, after all these chapters, they are truly reconciled. Joseph has forgiven them and they have repented of the way they've treated him. And it's really, really important to understand that. Notice that true reconciliation can only occur where there is forgiveness and repentance. See, Joseph has been willing to forgive. They've been willing to repent. It's like our relationship with God. God offers his forgiveness to who? To everyone, to anyone who wants it. He says, Jesus has died for your sins. Come and believe in him, accept my free gift. But it's only when we repent and accept his gift, it's only then that there can be reconciliation between us and God, a restored relationship. And it's the same in our relationships. I sometimes see and talk with Christians 
who unnecessarily tie themselves in knots over this. See, if you have been wronged, where we have been wronged, a Christian works at having an attitude of forgiveness. That's what we do. There's no place for grudges. There's no places for revenge. The fact that the other person hasn't repented, even if they've not repented, that's no excuse for bearing a grudge. But that doesn't mean reconciliation can then occur. You see, for reconciliation to happen, for the relationship to be restored, that requires both parties to come together. And usually repentance from both parties and forgiveness from both parties. And that's what you're seeing here between Joseph and the brothers led by Judah. And so Joseph and Pharaoh, Pharaoh gets involved at this point, they load the brothers up with incredible gifts and riches and they send them to return to Jacob with this incredible news. And then Jacob or Israel, as he's now starting to be called in the story, he doesn't believe them. They say, Joseph, your son is alive. And he says, no, he's not been dead for 20 years but then it's sort of like the, the the weight of evidence forces him to believe when he when they said well why on earth would pharaoh have given us all this gold and all these donkeys and all this grain if joseph wasn't alive and it's like at last he breaks out of the pit of depression that he's been in for 20 years or more at verse 28 look at verse 28 then israel said enough my son joseph is still alive I will go to see him before I die. In some senses, this is the climax of the story at this point. At last, Jacob can stop mourning and be happy again. But Jacob still had a problem. Can you work out what it was? This is like the advanced learning question. Can you work out what the problem Jacob would have had was? Goes back to remembering that it's not the story of Joseph. It's the story of God and his promises and Jacob's problem was God had promised them, him, this land of Canaan where he was living and where his family lived and where they were. But here he was about to leave it behind and there was going to be no one from God's chosen people still in the land of Canaan. No one left. Nothing. Nothing at all. See, Jacob desperately wanted to go to Joseph. He wanted that more than anything. And if he didn't go, he, he was caught because if he didn't go, then God's promises would fail because they'd all die of starvation. But if he did go, he was thinking, am I giving up on God? Am I giving up on God's promises to me for, for my family uh, to live in this promised land forever? And so he stops at Beersheba. We're right at the start of chapter 46. Come along there with me, 46 verse 1. He stops at this place, Beersheba, right on the edge of the promised land. Now, you've got no reason to know where Beersheba is, and I could put a map up and you'd smile, but you wouldn't really be able to tell where it is because it's smack bang right on the edge of the desert. But the reason that's important is it's the last place in the promised land before you head out and go to Egypt. So it's like he gets right to the edge and he says, hang on, I've got to stop and do business with God. And more than that, Beersheba was one of the places that God appeared to Abraham and God appeared to Isaac. And so they'd done business with God there. And so he stops and he says, I'm going to offer sacrifices to God, probably sacrifices of thanksgiving that his son was alive more than anything else. But then that night, God appears to him in a vision. He's lying there at Beersheba and he hears God's voice say, Jacob, Jacob. And Jacob says, here I am, Lord. And now look at what God said to him. Chapter 46, verse 3. 
God said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you back. Joseph will put his hands on your eyes. I hope you can see why this vision from God was so important for Jacob. It's because God was saying to Jacob, by going to Egypt, you're not thwarting my plans. You're not giving up on me. It's all part of my plan. So God says, don't be afraid, don't fear. And then he gives him these four reasons. If you're someone who takes notes, you'll see I've left four points on your outline just to keep you following along, to write down the four reasons God gives Jacob for why he should go to Egypt. And the first is God says, don't fear because it's in Egypt that I'm going to fulfill my promise to you to make you a great nation. Remember the promise? You'll have as many descendants as there is sand on the seashore or stars in the night sky. He says, well, in Egypt, I'm going to turn you from this ragtag family of 70 into a nation of millions of people. So that's the first reason, don't fear. Then God says, don't fear because I will be with you there in Egypt. This is so, so important. And people have misunderstood this for, for thousands of years. God is never stuck in one place. You don't find God in the promised land. You don't find God in a temple. You don't find God. God's not more up there than he is down there. God's not in any place like that. God is where his people are. God is with you wherever you are. This is not holy ground. This is just something to keep the rain off us. And often it doesn't do that very well. <laughs> you see, that this is the point. It, it, God says, you don't have to be here in Canaan for me to be with you. I'll be with you wherever you go and I'll be with you in Egypt. Thirdly, God says, don't fear because I will bring you back. In the future, I'll take you out of Egypt and I will give you this land again. You're not leaving it forever. And fourthly, God says, don't fear because Joseph will put his hands over your eyes. That's very strange, isn't it? I'd be scared if someone came up and put their hands over my eyes. But it's a poetical way of saying, Joseph, your favourite son... He will be with you when you die. You're not going to lose him again. This is it. You're going to see Joseph and he will be your son until you die. If we just pause there, God's words to Jacob, don't fear, don't be afraid, they are for you and for me as well. The New Testament has two different sort of understandings that we've got to hold together on the fear of the Lord. On the one hand, fear God in the sense that we honour him and treat him with the reverence and the awe and the respect that he deserves. In that sense, if you don't fear God, you are a fool. That's what the Bible says. It says if you don't fear God, if you treat God like some kind uncle who's your equal, then be very, very afraid because God is righteous and God is holy and we are sinners. If you treat God like someone who owes you something, then be very, very afraid. And that is the message that most Australians need to hear, frankly. But in another sense, God says, if you trust in Jesus, then don't fear. In the, in the sense of don't fear what will happen to you in the future. Don't fear my condemnation and wrath. God has made promises to you if you trust in Jesus, just like he made promises to Jacob. If you trust in Jesus, God says, don't fear because I have forgiven you. And I have declared you righteous. If you trust in Jesus, God says, don't fear because I am with you always. And when Christ returns, I have a place for you in my kingdom. 
And so like Jacob, we now live in the light of those promises. We get on with our lives, trusting God, trusting that he'll do for us what he's promised. And it's like Jesus said, Jesus said, seek first my kingdom and God will look after the rest. Jesus was just applying what what Jacob said. But back to Jacob. Jacob sets off for Egypt with all 70 of his family. They're listed there if you look at chapter 46. If you're one of those people that love lists of names, you can read through that for yourself later on. Uh, And he does it happily. He goes without fear because he knows God is with him and God is working for his good. Which brings us to the final reunion. Last week was sort of like the scariest family reunion in history. Now, this is the real happy family reunion. And you can only imagine the look on Jacob's face, can't you? When not only does Joseph come out and meet him after 20 or 25 years, but Joseph comes out riding on a chariot dressed up as the king of Egypt. You know, he's like, hang on, this, this is my son who's coming out to me. But that's what happens. And so they hug and they weep. And then look at chapter 46, verse 30. It says, then Israel said to Joseph, at last I can die now that I have seen your face and know you are still alive. If you've been reading along closely through the story, you'll notice that for 25 years, everything Jacob has said has been about death, but in a negative way. So ever since he lost his son, he has said, I want to die. My son is dead. Life is not worth living. Take me now. But this is different. This is now I can die because at last I'm happy. At last I'm content. It's like Simeon in the Christmas story. Do you know Simeon in the Christmas story? Who stands there, the old man on the temple steps, and they bring the baby Jesus to him and he says, Lord, take me now because now I have seen your salvation. It's a beautiful moment. It's like when I've on a couple of occasions had the incredible privilege of sitting with Christian people who are facing death from cancer or or other things. And it's incredible when they say, don't worry about me. Because for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I die, I get to go be with the Lord. There's no other philosophy can bring you that. This This is the thing. There is no other religion like it. It is only knowing Jesus that can make someone say, let me die now because now I'm happy. But that's what the gospel does, and that's the position Jacob is in here. Now, we don't have time to go through all of chapter 47. Flick through it with me now. Uh, But basically, Joseph takes Jacob and five of his brothers to meet with Pharaoh, I assume the five most impressive brothers. And because of Pharaoh's love and respect for Joseph, he gives them this fertile land of Goshen to live in. And they don't just survive there, they thrive there. And read chapter 47 later on if you ever want to go into politics. So if you've got an interest in, I don't know why you would do that, but anyway, if you did, read it. Because Joseph is incredibly shrewd and what he does is he basically arranges things so that every Egyptian person becomes a slave of Pharaoh and and have to pay him 20% of everything they ever earn forever. And the only free people in all of Egypt are him and his family. So if you ever want to learn how to be a shrewd politician, just read chapter 47. And what this is, though, is it's the final outworking of what we've seen right through this book of how God has worked for the good of his people, despite their evil actions, even through their evil actions. But I just want to point out two brief final things for those with eyes to see in chapter 47. And you'll see them there on your outline. 
Two, two last points. First thing I want to point out is the way God engineers things so that his people go down to Egypt and get saved, but they're not assimilated in to the Egyptian nation. That's a big concept, but I'll explain what I mean. We've seen it a couple of times in the story already. Did you notice back in last week's chapters where when Joseph had his brothers over for dinner, they all had to sit at different tables? Remember reading that? So Joseph sat at one table, the Egyptians sat at another table, and his brothers sat at another table. That's because the Egyptians were the only people in the ancient world who thought they were better than everyone else and thought we get dirty if we eat with other nations. Every other nation in the ancient world, if the Jews had gone there, they would have just become part of their culture and they would have just started eating what they ate and, and marrying them and all that sort of thing. But in Egypt, the Egyptians cared even more about remaining separate. Now, why is that so important? It's because for God to fulfill his promises, these people had to remain their own nation. They couldn't just become part of Egypt. See, more than that, the Egyptians thought that shepherds were the lowest of the low. And so Joseph takes his brothers aside and says, every time you're talking to Pharaoh, just tell him, by the way, we're shepherds. Now, why were they doing that? It's because that meant Pharaoh said, I'm going to save you because I love Joseph, but go over there. Don't come anywhere near me. And you can have that really fertile bit of the country that no one else goes, you know, that doesn't come anywhere near me. And in fact, I'll send you all my cows and you can look after them and my sheep because I don't like looking after cows and sheep. See, that's what happened. Pharaoh says, I'll let you come, but I want you to stay separate. And that is so, so important because God's people have to remain separate from the world we live in. We're in the world, but not of the world. And that was so important here. God was working here to save his people, but more than that, to build them into this great nation. And that wouldn't have happened if they'd gone anywhere else. Secondly, and lastly, and tied to that, even though Jacob was happy for his family to live in Egypt for this time, he never lost sight of where his real home was. So jump to the end of chapter 47 with me to the last few verses to verse 27. It says, Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the region of Goshen. They acquired property in it and became fruitful and very numerous. Now Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years and his lifespan was 147 years. See, they bought houses there. They set up businesses there. They got on with life. They succeeded. But then... Look at verse 29. When the time drew near for him to die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, if I have found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh. That was how you bound someone to a promise. Put your hand under my thigh and promise me that you will deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt. When I rest with my fathers, carry me away from Egypt and bury me in their burial place. Now, Why was Jacob so adamant that he didn't want to get buried in Egypt, that he wanted to get his body taken back to Canaan and buried in the cave where Abraham had been buried and Isaac had been buried? Why did he make him swear that oath? It wasn't because he was superstitious. It wasn't because he thought, if I don't get buried there, then, you know... God can't look after me. So it's nothing like that. Jacob knew he would go to be with the Lord when he died, wherever he was buried. He knew that. See, what Jacob was doing was making a point to Joseph. 
and to all his people. He was saying, Egypt is not our inheritance. This is not our home. This is not the end of the story. This is not where the story ends for God's people. Canaan is the land that God has promised to us. That's our future. Here in Egypt, we'll be fruitful, we'll be blessed, we'll grow into a great nation, but we'll always have one eye on something better to come. We will always be looking forward to something much, much better, our own land where we will live under God and he will be our God and we will be his people. And brothers and sisters, this is the main point I want you to take away from tonight's passage. Because at that point, Jacob is speaking to you and me, not just Joseph and the people 4,000 years ago. And I hope you know this, but we need to be reminded of it every week and every day. We, the New Testament people of God, we are living in Egypt. That's where we're living. You might think, no, I'm not living in Sydney. We're living in Egypt in the sense that we are living in a land that is not ours and is not our future. See, this world is not your inheritance. This world is not your home. This is not where the story ends for you if you trust in Jesus. Where are we citizens of if you're a Christian? Where should your passport say citizen of? Heaven. That's what you're a citizen of. Here on earth, we're just temporary residents. We're like those refugees just sort of roaming on through. We look forward to that day when Christ will return and he will bring a new heaven and a new earth and we will live in it with him forever. So it's fine to build a house here in Egypt. It's fine to enjoy the fruit of your labours here in Egypt. Maybe get married and have children here in Egypt. But we must never get too attached must never get too comfortable here. We must never let the blessings of this world be the centre of our focus. Apostle Paul tells us this, doesn't he, in the New Testament? Look at the verses I've put on your outline. Look at Philippians chapter 3. He says, they, that is people who don't trust in Jesus, they are focused on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus makes it even more stark as he usually does look at Matthew chapter 6 verses 19 to 21 on your outline he says don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but collect for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal for where your treasure is there your heart will be also see Jacob says do not set your heart on this land and Jesus says don't set your heart on this world don't put your roots down too deep in this world set your heart where you really belong put your roots down where you really belong store up your treasures in heaven not here in this world